0: 2018, it's good to have you here. Those of you in Bellingham, those of you in Skagit, so glad that you've joined us today. And thank you so much for allowing Pastor Brian uh, to be with us here last weekend. And it was a wonderful time, as you know, uh, because Pastor Brian is such a great communicator and his content is so biblically solid. But what we really love is his sermons are so incredibly short. Uh, So that was fantastic. And uh, so I just figured those are rollover minutes for me for today. So I get to use those, and, and that'll be good. Those of you watching online, good to have you uh, with us. Before I get into uh, what I want to talk about today, I want to, again, just tell you why I'm so grateful to get to be a part of this group called Cornwall Church. And, again, thank you for your heart that reflects the heart of Christ, not only for your own self or your own family, but for the world around us and our community. Um, as you know many of you participated and gave literally tens of thousands of dollars worth of toys to the community toy store so that families uh, that are struggling would be able to have a, a, a really a wonderful christmas morning uh, that otherwise would not have been able to and and that you gave so generously to that to families that you will never meet. And I just love that heart. They say, you know what, I I don't need thanks. I don't need, uh, you know, acknowledgement. We just, God has blessed us. We want to be a blessing. We want to bless our community. In addition to that, we had our annual gift of grub at our Christmas Eve services. And we've been doing this for years. And many of you gave out of your abundance. Some of you sacrificed out of your own uh, time of need. But uh, Pastor Mike Ford, our Go and Be Pastor, told me that we, uh, for Cornwall, we broke all records uh, of any time we've done this in the past that for the first time this year, you gave, we gave over 20,000 pounds of food uh, to our local food banks to be able to help families out uh, this time of year. So yeah, just really grateful for that. Again, people people that you will never meet Be able to have food on their shelves. And many of you prayed for the people that would receive that, as well as some of you put the stickers on, just letting them know that they are valued and and that we love them, and just a chance to bless our community. But there were people that you do know that you were involved with as well, And, and you prayed for and invited people to come to our Christmas Eve services. And again, this this last uh, year at our Christmas Eve services, as far as the numbers of people that attended, broke all records. The highest attended Christmas Eve services in the 112 year history of this church. And we are just praying that the seeds that were planted and the little embers that are fanned into flame and some of the the prayers that were prayed and the decisions that were made would continue to grow and to flourish. And I want to ask you, would you continue to pray for those people who came and heard the word of God and heard the truth, the good news of great joy for them, that that would continue to grow in their lives and just continue to pray that God would do his ongoing work uh, that has uh, been started in their hearts and in their lives. And along that line with with praying, there's a a verse, a very short, very concise verse that is extremely profound. Just eight words, and yet these words are so filled with meaning and, and direction for us These words out of this verse have become, for our pastoral team here at Cornwall Church, kind of a a guiding beacon for us as we go into 2018. And the words are found in Colossians chapter 4, and they simply say, Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. Now, I'm not going to preach on this verse today. I, I may in a month or so. But this is going to be kind of a key verse for our time today. This concept of devoting yourself to prayer means that it's not just an occasional casual glance you give towards it. Devote kind of implies this intentional, consistent engagement in this thing of prayer with this attitude of of expectation, of anticipation, this faith of God watching. What's God going to do? And with this heart that just says, I trust God and I'm going to thank you if the answer to my prayer is yes, I'm going to thank you. If it's no, I'm going to thank you. If it's wait, I'm going to thank you because God, you know best and I know that I can trust you in this. So devote yourself to prayer, being watchful and thankful. What I want us to do in our time today is I want to turn our focus and attention towards two stories from the Bible. One is from the Old Testament, and one is from the New Testament. One is from the first book of the Bible, Genesis. One culminates in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. They're about 2,000 years apart, and when they happen, one is with an individual, and the other is with a group of people. And as we look at these two stories, some of them, for, for some of you, are very familiar. We're going to see what these two stories that are so separated by time... Have in common, and then what that has to do with Cornwall Church in 2018, and tie that in to this verse, and then hopefully at the end have something that we can walk out with and apply to our lives. So, ready to do that? Good. All right. So, the first story is a story about Jacob. Jacob is a man in the Old Testament, this is found in Genesis little background on that. Jacob's grandfather was Abraham. Abraham was a real famous guy. That was his grandpappy. And his dad was Isaac. Here's the other thing about Jacob. Jacob had a twin brother, Esau. Jacob and Esau, these twin brothers, could not have been more polar opposites in their temperament, in their personality, in the way they pursued life. They were just complete opposites, even though they're twin brothers. And uh, you can read uh, their lives. I mean, just the way they went about life. I mean, Esau's is outdoorsman, man's man. You know, you think full beard kind of lumberjack-like guy. And and Esau's kind of maybe a little softer and appreciates some of the finer things in life. Maybe doesn't even mind having a manicure occasionally. I I don't know. I, I, I don't know. But if they were looking for property... Esau would want something with acreage and a shop that he could be wrenching on stuff and have a place to hang the carcasses of whatever he just killed for his man cave with the trophies and some land for, you know, for things like motocross and farm animals. Jacob would want a loft in the arts district so he'd never have to mow the lawn ever again. Now, that's just kind of their personalities. And what's interesting is that Esau, he's a bit impulsive. You read his story and you're like, oh, E, you should have thought that one through, you know. Jacob, on the other hand, he's a thinker. He's a little bit deceptive. He's he's a little bit of a conniver. You're never really sure what's what's he working right now. And it plays out one time when they're young. When Esau comes in out of the field, he's hungry. Jacob's been working on a new recipe for lentil stew. And Esau says, I want some of that. And Jacob starts working this thing, kind of getting some angles. He says, yeah, I'll sell you this for your birthright. Esau says, fine, whatever, I'm hungry. And he sells his birthright for a pot of stew. This uh, would cause some tension, no doubt, in their relationship. Well, fast forward until the time these two brothers are about 40 years old. Their father, Isaac, is nearing the time of death. They're 40. They live in this place called Beersheba. Beersheba means the well of oath or the well of sevens. Unlike the Washington state, they were allowed to dig wells. Now, that's not a political statement. It's just an observation. So they're in a place called Beersheba. And as their father is getting near his death, Jacob goes in and deceives his dad, dresses up like Esau, and says, Father, give me your final blessing, to which Isaac does. When Esau finds out about this, he's absolutely livid. By the way, Jacob's mom helped him with this whole scheme. so a lot of dysfunction in this family. Esau finds out about this. He's livid, and he says, when dad dies, after the days of mourning are over, I am going to kill my brother. This isn't an idle threat. We've seen from his life that he does things very impulsively, and he means this. And so Jacob now is fearing for his life. The word of this comes to the mom, and she says, Jacob, you need to leave. You need to go. Go see my brother. Go to your uncle. And go get married. Jacob's 40 years old. He's not married. Esau, Esau, he's kind of drawn towards foreign women, especially Hittite women. And it drives his mom crazy that he brings home these foreign women. He's like, oh. And she says to him, don't be like your brother. Marry one from our clan. So away he goes. He's leaving Beersheba, which is out in the Negev desert, going up to a place called uh, Padan Aram, going up to see his uncle. And so he takes off on a dark desert highway, the cool wind in his hair. And he's walking throughout the day. And he gets to the time when his head grew heavy and his sight grew dim. He had to stop for the night. So he stops, and the Bible says he stops at a certain place. We come and out, find out later it's a place called Luz. But at this point, the Bible says it's a certain place. So here he stops, and he takes a stone and uses it as a pillow. So he lays his head down on this stone, and he falls asleep, and he goes into this sleep where he has this incredibly vivid dream. And I think as he's having this dream, the soundtrack is that guitar riff from Stairway to Heaven in the background. Because he sees this stairway to heaven. And there's angels ascending and descending on this stairway, on this ladder. And at the top is the Lord. And the Lord speaks to Jacob in this dream. And he says to him, I will give you your own land. And I will give you descendants. You know, right now he's on the run and he's not even married. And God's promising something that he doesn't have. He says, "Your, your descendants will be so many, they'll be to the north and the south and the east and the west. And all the nations on this planet earth will be blessed because of your descendants. And I will always go with you. I will not leave you. It's an incredibly vivid dream. And then he wakes up. Genesis chapter 28, verse 16. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. Now this verse is an entire sermon on its own that I don't have time for, except that I've got the rollover minutes from last week with Brian's sermon, so I can give you the condensed version of it. Okay, here's a cool thought. Here's Jacob, and he's in a situation and a circumstance in life where it would be easy to conclude God's not with me. All right? He's 40 years old. He hasn't been married. He doesn't have a job. He doesn't have a land. His dad is dying. He will never see his dad again. His brother's angry and not only threatening to kill him, but planning to kill him. He's on the lamb, He's running. He has nothing. He's so poor, he has to use a rock for a pillow. Now, because of the circumstances of life and the consequences of his own choices, because he has lied to his father, he's cheated, and he's stolen from his brother, it would be easy to conclude in all of this, God has forsaken me, I've ruined it with God, God could never be here, and yet he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware of it. Could it be That those times in our life when we feel like, God, you've abandoned me, you've left me, or I've screwed up so bad you would never want anything to do with me, that in those times, in those places, surely the Lord is there and we're not even aware of it. Okay, now that has nothing to do with the sermon, but isn't that a cool thought? That one's for free. All right. All right. So he goes there and he says that. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. And when he recognizes what had just happened and that, he was, that God met with him in this dream, the next morning he takes that, that stone that was his pillow and he sets it up as a pillar and he anoints it as a, as a memorial site that, that this is you know, like where God met with me and, and made these promises to me. And then in verse 19, it says, he called that place Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. Now, some of you are familiar, when something is given a new name, especially in the Bible, that there's a lot of meaning tied to it. It's not just a random, yeah, we didn't like that name, so we tried a new one. It wasn't like that at all. There's always some meaning with that. This is the case again. Now, the, the prefix there, the, the Beth, that's one you hear a lot. Bethlehem, Bethany, Bethsaida, Bethphage. Even synagogues today are called Temple Beth Israel. The word Beth means house. Bethlehem is a house of bread. Bethany is a house of figs. It would often talk about things around there. The back part of it is El. El is another common part of words. Daniel, Daniel, Ezekiel, Lemuel, Emmanuel. These kind of things. Elijah, Elisha, El Shaddai, Elohim, El Elyon. El means God. So this word Bethel, literally translated, means house of God. He says that this is like surely the house of God. It's it's the opening to heaven. So he sets up this stone and he says, I will call this place the house of God. This is now Bethel. And then he makes a vow, some vows. Because God, if this is true, if you're going to give me land and you're going to give me descendants and you're going to bless me and all the world will be blessed because of my descendants and you're going to go with me, then you'll be my God. And he makes these vows to God, one of which included Tithing," he said. "From here on out, ten percent of everything I ever own, ever make, it's all yours, God. I will always tithe to you." So he sets it up in Bethel. Well, he goes on, and life goes on. He goes, he sees his uncle Laban. He falls in love with this girl named Rachel. She's amazing, and Laban says, "Yeah, you can marry her, but you have to work for me seven years." Some of you know this story. So he does. He works for her for, for se- works for Laban for seven years. Wedding night, gets married, wakes up in the morning, and he's married to the wrong woman married to her older sister Leah. Leah, who has not yet been married. All the Bible says about Leah is that she's weak in the eyes. Always running into stuff. Whatever. She can't get married. So he wakes up. He's like, this isn't the one I wanted to marry. I wanted to marry Rachel. And he says, well, you can marry Rachel too. You just got to work another seven years because it's fine. So they get married. So now he's married and God begins to bless him. His his, uh, his flocks begin to increase. He begins to have children. He has 11 sons who will eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, I know, Benjamin's not born yet. That's why I know how to do math. Okay, so don't worry about me on that one. So he has these sons. Then there's this time where he wrestles with God and kind of has this hip replacement surgery thing that happens. And he gets a new name, and God says, no longer will you be called Jacob, which means deceiver. Now you will be called Israel. And that's where we get the name Israel. And the 12 sons become the 12 tribes, and it becomes the nation. And then there's a very scary moment in his life because he has this time when he is going to meet his brother again. Hasn't seen his brother in 20 or 30 years. The last time they saw each other, his brother, who is very impetuous, said, I will kill you. And he's very frightening. A very frightening time. And so they come together and all this, and it's one of this beautiful picture of reconciliation where you just see him out there and they're like, brothers don't shake hands. Brothers gotta. You know, I mean, it's just a beautiful picture of these guys coming back together, being reconciled again. And then now, we're 30 years later. He's 70 years old. Genesis 35 says this. God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel, the house of God. Go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. You remember that time? You remember that time when you had nothing? When you were so poor, you didn't have a pillow to sleep on. And you were running for your life. You had no descendants. You had no flocks. You had no land. You had nothing. You were scared. And you had lied to your father and you had cheated your brother and you had stolen the birthright. Go back to that place where I appeared to you. Where I made promises to you. Where you made vows to me. Verse 3, and he tells his family, we got to repent from some stuff. Verse 3 says, "Then, then come, let us go up to Bethel, where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I've gone. God has stayed true to his word. He promised me that he would bless me, and he has. He promised me he would never leave me, and he hasn't. This is all, and and these are the vows that I made. That's the story of Jacob. Hold on to that. Put that in a little capsule. 2,000 years later, give or take, you find this instance that happens, an event that happens, recorded in Acts chapter 19. The apostle Paul and his friends, Priscilla and Aquila, who are from Rome, they go to this town, very important city, a town called Ephesus. Ephesus was located in what today would be modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was a very important city. It was a port city right on the coast. A lot of commerce, a lot of trade, a lot of economy that took place there. It was a very big city, a metropolis. And it, culturally, it was a kind of a hub. And religiously, it was a hub. Because in Ephesus, there was the temple to Artemis. And it was one of the ancient seven wonders, uh, seven wonders of the ancient world was this temple to Artemis. And people from all over the known world would come to Ephesus, not only because of the trade and the commerce and the culture, but to worship at this temple of, of Artemis. And Paul comes and he stays for two years. And in those two years, he proclaims the message about Jesus Christ, the living God, and the grace and the forgiveness and the life and the Holy Spirit, And God does amazing things in the most unlikely situation. This is a very worldly, very pagan culture, and God begins to do his work. And people begin to discover the truth about Jesus and begin to discover that they can be set free from their chains of their sin and their guilt and that there is a living God who they can walk with and live with every single day. And over those, those days, those that, two years, there's this revival that breaks loose. In fact, it, it says, I think in verse 19, that the numbers grew uh, to many followers of Jesus. And people were being healed physically, and they were being released from the bondage of their past. And not everybody was happy about this. There were some riots that broke out. There was a lot of hatred. But the name of the Lord was feared and re- revered by those who were followers after Jesus. And Paul was not, not really liked, or, or some of the leaders as well. And so there was some persecution. Well, as is often the case with Paul, after he stays there for a while, two years in this instance, he moves on after the church has been established. He moves on to go preach the good news of Jesus at another place. Fast forward eight, 10 years later, and he writes a letter to this church in Ephesus. It's a letter that's been preserved over the years, and we still have it today. It's in the New Testament. We refer to it as Ephesians Like the book of Ephesians, but it really, it's a letter from Paul to the church in Ephesus. And one of the things he says to this church in Ephesians is this, "...for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers." He says, I've heard about how you've continued what we started a couple years ago, what God was doing in your midst. It has just continued to grow. You've continued to flourish. You continue to, to excel in your faith of Christ and your love for others, of becoming the people that God has created you to be, of, of living as sons and daughters of the Most High. And he says, it's just amazing what God is continuing to do. And what he started 10 or 12 years ago, he just continues on. And then he, he begins to remind them of who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ, and this is such a beautiful, this is another little free sermon for you. Because he doesn't talk about what he did or what Apollos did or what uh, Priscilla and Aquila did. He keeps pointing people to Jesus Christ. And the truth is this, that around here, we have always only Uh, should never do anything but point people to Jesus Christ. It's not about anyone else. This is Jesus' church. We are his bride. We are his sons and daughters. We're redeemed by his blood. We're called into his kingdom. It's all about Jesus, and we best be pointing people to him and him alone. Another little free sermon for you. All right, so so he does all this and reminds them of who they are in Christ and what they have in Christ. And then he writes it. He writes out a prayer. And this is so beautiful. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3 when he writes out his prayer for them, and he says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and i pray that you being rooted and established in love may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of god and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you I love this that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of god And then he comes to this dramatic conclusion of his prayer. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that's at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. It's this beautiful prayer he prays for them. He says, man, I praise God for what has happened what he did 12 years ago, what he's doing today. And I pray that it will continue on in the power of the Holy Spirit, generation after generation after generation, that the church in Ephesus will continue to thrive, will continue to make a difference, will continue to alter the spiritual landscape of that community. One generation later, 30 years later, an old man named John, he gets a vision. He begins to write this vision down. And as he's writing this vision down, Jesus appears to him and says, I have a message for my church in Ephesus. And he writes down this message that Jesus has for these people in Ephesus. You can find this in Revelation chapter 2. And he starts off and he just commends the church. He said, "I, I commend them for their hard work. I commend them for their perseverance. They've persevered through difficult times, through persecution. They've stayed in the fight. They've kept punching it. They're going after it on top of that. They continue to hold to the truth. They don't let the culture around them sway them from the truth of God's word. They don't put up with false teachers. They won't go with the practice of the Nicolaitans, which we won't get into all that whole thing. He says they've got great theology. They've stayed true to it all. They've continued on. This is now, whatever, 40-some years after those initial days with Paul. And then he writes this, Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Yet I hold this against you. I mean, you're doing great. Your theology is solid. Your lifestyle is fantastic. You're not contaminated by the world around you. But all is not well. There is one thing that we do need to talk about. There is one issue that we need to confront. You have forsaken your first love. Your theology is great. Your lifestyle is honoring to God. You're disciplined. You're doing all the things, but something's not right here. Like there's a there's a heart issue. Like like there's a spark that's not there. That, there's a passion you used to have, and it's not there anymore. And it it's like you you're going through the motions. You're doing all the right things, but but what's the motive? And why are you doing these things? It, it's like From all outward appearances, it looks like it's all great. But you've lost something here. And then he very clearly and specifically gives them instructions of how they can correct this and what he wants them to do. Verse 5, he says, remember the height from which you have fallen. Like, think back. Reflect back. Think back 30 years when Paul wrote that letter. Think back 40 years when you first started. Think about how things were then how it wasn't just some religious rituals that you were doing, wasn't some dutiful disciplines that you just followed through because you ought to, because of obligation. It was from this heart that was so filled with passion for Jesus, the zeal that you had, the life that you had, because he had rescued you out of the kingdom of darkness. He had taken you away from man-made idols and let you have a relationship with the living God. Remember those days. Remember how wonderful it was and how you would do anything because you found this life in Christ. So repent, he says... And do the things you did at first. Not just the activities, but something here. What was it with that heart, with that passion, with that spark, with that love, with that worship, that that motivated you to do those things? Remember where you came from and go back and do that again. Here's an interesting thing. This verse 5, remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. There was an entire movie made about this concept. It's called Rocky 3. Some of you are old enough to remember. That's that's Rocky 3 in one sentence or two right there. So so he says that. He says, remember, and then go back. So here's a story. Jacob, an individual, Ephesus, church, 2,000 years apart, two testaments apart, different circumstances. And yet the thing that holds them together and in common is what God asked them to do. And it can be really brought down to one word return. Return. Go back to Bethel. Go back and remember. Remember the heights from which you've fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. Return. Return back to the way it was. Return back to where where God's presence was so real to you. When when he made those promises, when you made those vows, when when you would do anything. Return back to those days when you were driven by this zeal and this passion and this love. Return to those things. Go back to Bethel. Do what you did at first. And the reason I share those stories with you is that the leadership of this church has been sensing a prompting of the Holy Spirit saying the very word to us. Return. Return. Think about how it was. Go back and do some of the things you used to do. And this started stirring within me, and it's been amazing how it's been affirmed as, it's been, as the Holy Spirit's been stirring this in some of our other pastors and in our elders and some of you And some of you may remember four months ago, in the early September, uh, that day I just shared my reflections of 30 years at this church. And um, Skagit, you didn't see that because you guys were having your five-year anniversary. And Boca, you guys didn't see it because you guys were having a hurricane and you didn't have church that day. And some of you didn't see it because you weren't here. And some of you were here and didn't see it. (laughs) So I want you... um, to watch a four-minute segment when I begin to share this publicly for the first time, this stirring in my heart. Four minutes, and then we'll we'll come back. But It says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. These jars of clay, this picture of these disposable containers that are worthless, yet there's something so valuable in it. And the whole reason is to show that this all-surpassing power is from God. It's not from us. And this was another, another uh, truth that gripped us, was that God's power was the only thing that was going to make any kind of a lasting difference. And, and prayer was such a huge piece of those early days. In fact, when I became senior pastor, I basically there were three conditions, really. One, we still had one more trip to, to Mexico with the youth group I wanted to take in August. I wasn't planning on cutting my hair. And I asked the church to pray like they had never prayed before. And people did. Many of us read this book called Mighty Prevailing Prayer that just inspired us to hit our knees and to pray. Pastor Tom and Francis Purcell, they had been Pearl Harbor survivors, retired pastors. These they were prayer warriors. And, and the church just prayed. I mean, we 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 had this rule. It was called the blanket rule. We talked about it every every month, the blanket rule. It means blanket everything in prayer. Cover everything in prayer. Before you do anything around here, pray first. Cover it all in prayer. Cover the chairs in prayer. Cover the instruments in prayer. Pray. Blanket everything in prayer. And we did. We would have 24-hour prayer vigils where we would ask people, sign up to come to the church and pray for one hour. And we would cover the whole deal. I mean, we'd do the sign-up sheets. Three o'clock in the morning, four in the morning, people would show up at the church to pray. There, most of us carried around in our Bibles a little card that was referred to as the heaven's most wanted list. It was the names of people that didn't know Jesus and we were committed to praying for them, praying that their eyes would be open, their hearts would be softened, their, their resistance would be receptivity. And we just prayed for them day after day and we invited and we shared and we believed and we saw people come to know the Lord. Ron Pye just shared today about how he was one of those guys that would come to church not wanting to have anything to do with God. He and his buddies would come. And I remember this young, handsome Hawaiian kid from Blaine. They would come on Saturday night, him and his buddies. And then they'd go to the bars, and they'd smoke and drink and talk about what they heard in their service. And now he's our worship director. (laughs) You know what that means? Is that your next pastor is probably hung over right now. (laughs) Just Maybe. But we just prayed. There was a season, I did a a series on prayer at least twice a year. One time I was talking about prayer and I was preaching out of Matthew 6 where Jesus talks about the spiritual discipline of fasting, which we don't hear a lot about in America these days. And I preached on what is is the discipline of fasting. And at the end of that sermon, I just kind of made this comment of, wouldn't it be cool if there were 30 or 31 of us who would say, I'll fast one day a month and we could just cover this church in prayer and fasting. It was just a passing thought. After that service, people started coming up and said, put me on the fasting calendar. And we did. For years, we had a calendar. Every single day, there was someone praying and fasting for the ministries of this church. And a little side note, and this isn't to exalt them, just to let you know for your encouragement that our elder board continues that tradition to this day, that one of our elders fasts every day of the week. There's a different elder every day and they're covering this church in prayer and fasting. What if we just embrace that as a church? See, here's the truth I believe, and this is an indictment on me more than anybody else, is that we aren't the praying church that we were in those days. And that needs to change. Because only when we realize that this all-surpassing power is from God, and that only He is the one who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. And only as we come to Him earnestly praying and believing will we see Him do incredible things. I shared that that weekend, and immediately there were people that just said, I've been feeling the same thing. Our pastors, our elders... I mean, different ones of you. And some of you text me or caught, caught me out on the, on the sidewalk or wrote me notes just saying, hey, I remember those days. And it wasn't just a nostalgia thing. It, there was this urgency, this hunger of we need to return to that. I, I, I've been sensing the same thing, just this affirmation. And as we shared it with our pastors and we shared it with our elders, it was just unanimous, absolutely. And to just to the point was to say we are just going to devote ourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. This is going to be our driving force. Because we need to go back. We need to return to Bethel. We need to go do what we did at first. And so one of the things, a little phrase that as our our pastoral team that we're just using this year is inspiring a a life of prayer. That we just inspire people to not just a sweet hour of prayer, not just a season of prayer, but to a life of prayer. And the, the beautiful picture of this comes from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Because who is ever more devoted to prayer, being watchful and thankful than Jesus And it wasn't just some obligation. It wasn't just some discipline. It wasn't just some I have to. There was something more to that. And this has started. It's already started. We just want this to be woven into every fiber of the fabric of our being here at Cornwall Church. That we as a church would be a praying people. That together, that everything we do would be covered in that prayer that we would be strengthened in prayer. We would be guided because of prayer. We would commit everything to God in prayer. And so as we've been talking about this, I mean, in our pastoral team, I mean, individually and collectively, there's a new fervor. There's a new spark. There's a new fire in our prayer life. With our elders, there's this new commitment and this uh, just a, a resolve with prayer. And on top of that, like Pastor Michael Eibold and the the Explorers League team, they've been talking about how do we infuse this into the children's ministry? And they've even shifted some things around so prayer's on the front end instead of a back end so it doesn't get just taken out because of a lack of time. Pastor Scott and Caitlin and Jeff are talking about how do we, how do we incorporate this in our middle school and our high school ministry so that prayer becomes a part of, of those ministries. And Pastor Scott with, our, with the table, with the young adults ministry, how does that be a part? Pastor Bill, he's already tipped the hand to all of our small group leaders saying, this is our emphasis, this, we're really going to focus on this. And, and just to be able to, to have this as something that is a part of who we are. So before Christmas this year, we went back and said, well, let's, do, let's start doing what we did at first. And we had a 12-hour prayer vigil where some of you signed up and showed up to spend an hour praying and getting ready for our Christmas Eve services and the people. And, and, and many of the groups came in here and they just laid hands on these chairs and prayed for the people that would be sitting in these chairs that God's word would get through to them. At the end of the hour that I led, one of the ladies in my group said, man, I wish we could do this every week just to have this prayer. And we want prayer to just immerse, our whole church immersed in prayer, that you would be growing in your prayer life, that you would be um, prayed for. And, And listen, if you ever feel like you want someone to pray for you, there's ample opportunity for that to happen. Here's four, for example. In person, after every service, usually I remember, but it happens even if I don't say it. After every service, there are prayer partners here in the front would love to pray with you. Doesn't matter how big or small your prayer request, just come up and they will pray for you. Another one is by phone. You can call the church office and this will be put onto a prayer chain with other people who are just saying, we'll pray for you. Tell us what to pray for, we'll pray for it. Or you can email it to prayers at cornwallchurch.com. You can even text it in to to 97,000, text Cornwall Prayer. Now, standard texting uh, fees may apply, so check with your carrier, but you can do that. We just want prayer to be a part of it. In about a month, in the weeks leading up to Easter, we're going to be in this emphasis called Pray First. And for seven weeks, we're going to be, in, in the weekend services, we're going to be focused on, focused on different prayers and prayers throughout the Old and New Testament. In our small groups, we're going to be studying that and digging into that. And Pastor Bill and Pastor Randy and Elaine Elkins are right now working on a, on a prayer journal, prayer guide, devotional. That will be a daily thing that every single one of us can go through. Now, I want you to, I want you to hear me very clearly on this. When we talk about all of this, it's not a program, okay? It's not a program. This whole thing, it's a privilege, and it's got to be a priority. Because I know for some of you are saying, "Oh, here we go," and I ought to, and yeah, I should. And there's this, there's already this heaviness of guilt because I'm not much of a prayer, and they're going to ask me to get up at three in the morning. All that. listen. I don't want anything of this to be legalistic. I spent enough years of my Christian walk in legalism, and I don't want that. I don't want you going through this because of obligation. I don't want this to be some dry, dutiful discipline that doesn't breathe any life into you. Because isn't it true that you can pray, and you can pray prayers, and you can be disciplined in your prayer life and still have no transformation in your own heart? Jesus said these horrible words. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. That's the last thing I want. That's what Jesus said to the church in Ephesus. You're doing all the right stuff. You're going through all the motions. You've got all the disciplines down. What about this? What about your heart? See, we want you to understand and experience prayer as this thing that just breathes life into your soul. That you would pray first. Pray first. In the times of sorrow, that you would pray and seek the joy of the Lord. In times of hardship, you would pray and find the strength of God. In the times of temptation, you would pray first and find the the power from the Holy Spirit and the victory that comes with that. In the times of confusion and uncertainty, you would pray first and find the wisdom of God. In the time with insurmountable challenges and, and impossible things, that you would pray for the, for the power of God. In those times of despair, you would pray first to find that you can worship even in the dark valley. That we would just pray in such a way that it becomes this refreshing water that just, just flows into a dry and weary soul. That it's this transformative relationship with the living God who says, I've called you to be my sons and my daughters, and to walk in the life that it would just breathe life into you. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for me. That's what I want for us. Not this heavy, burdensome grip by the obligation, but this privilege becomes a priority in our life. You know, one of the things when Jesus would pray and the disciples would say to him, Jesus, when you pray, it's different. It's different. One of the reasons... When he would start his prayers, he would say, Father. And that was unheard of in those days. But it's like there was this, this relationship, this connection, this familiarity with, with Heavenly Father who calls us sons and daughters. You see, if I ever say this, call me on it. If I ever say, Come on, you guys, prayer works, that is reducing this life-giving privilege down to a formula that somehow we think handcuffs God, twists his arm so that he becomes our divine vending machine. God wants so much more for us than for him to just be our vending machine. I mean, I think about this with my daughters. If I heard them say, hey, talk to dad, talk works. Go in and start off with adoration. Butter him up. Oh, father, you're the best dad a daughter could ever ask for. And then do some confession. Say you're sorry for all that stuff we did in high school. And then thank him for some things. And then start asking him for what you want. And make sure you keep your eyes closed and at the end say, oh, and and dad, it's in your name, I ask these things. And sometimes it works. That's not what I want from my daughters. I want so much more. I want a relationship. I want to talk. I want to share. I want to to cry with them and and rejoice with them and give them direction and guidance and and sometimes give them what they want and sometimes give them what they need. But I want this relationship. How much more our Heavenly Father wants that for us? Do not reduce this prayer thing to some way, formulaic way to get God to somehow give you what you want. There's so much more to it than that. You know, the time when Jesus got most ticked off, at least recorded in the New Testament, uh, was right before he was crucified. And it's not because they were going to kill him that he was so ticked off. That's what's interesting. It wasn't the, he knew the crucifixion was coming. That's not what made him upset. He was ticked off. And the week before he's crucified, he goes into the temple. And, I mean, he just goes off. Like, They've got these animals. He starts letting the animals loose. It's stampede. And then he's throwing tables over and he's got a whip. I mean, what would Jesus do? <laughs> Don't try that at home. But it's like a Jesus you never saw anywhere else. He's, just, he's, he's like going off. And in the midst of this outrage, when he's got this righteous indignation, he says this. It is written, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you're making it a den of robbers. Now, when he says this, my house will be called the house of prayer, he's qu-